All right, here we go. We'll get it going. Ready, Connor? Yep. This is our first episode, and I do have a name for it too, GOAT, the GOAT, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. So pretty, you know, not the best, but I'm looking forward to having Connor back after his appendicitis. So Connor, let's go for it. All right. Hey there, Squash fans, and thanks for coming back to another episode of The Breakdown with myself, Connor O'Malley, and my partners in Chime, your co-hosts, Bill Buckingham and Paul Johnson, PJ Squash. Three quick notes before we get into it. One, it's been a minute since we put out our last episode, and that's due to a recent emergency surgery I had to remove my appendix. So it's disrupted our recording schedule, but we're looking forward to getting back on track. Two, we've got some exciting things coming down the pike for the Squash Radio channel. We are working on some rebranding as well as launching some new content types. More to come on that soon. Third, in this episode, we had some challenges with sound quality. Not too bad, just in some parts, but uh, hang in there with us because it's still a great episode and we'll correct it for the next time. On to our show. And simply put, we're talking about goats, meaning the greatest of all time. We go around the room and share our top three picks in the field of sports, and they'll go on to our sweet spot of squash. A quick thank you again to our sponsor, Baya Sports. They are both Bill and mine's favorite squash shoe ever because they feel great and they look great. So go to BayaSports.us and check out their newest Force X. That's B-I-A Sports.us. Thank you again for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. What about this? This call is being recorded. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of The Breakdown with my co-host, Bill Buckingham and PJ. Welcome back, guys. Great to be back, Connor. Are you supposed to ask me what episode is this? Hey, Bill, what episode is this? Hey, Connor, this is episode legitimately episode one three but you know because uh there was superstition and because you have been mia for the last month basically don't forget about the lost episode the lost episode true so we're going to call this episode 14 episode 14 excited we have a great guest pj is we don't even consider pj a guest anymore he's one of us now so we don't have he's to do part the, of the long, family yeah so no more long boring pj oh he works for psa squash he's blah 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 he used to have a ponytail he's a great squash player yada 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 so we don't have to go through that nonsense anymore welcome back connor we know to, you know seriously you've had some health issues we didn't have an episode the last two weeks because of your health issues we had to call them off so just for our fans how are you feeling connor well, I'm feeling a little bit lighter. I lost an appendix, but I'm upright, so to speak, and hanging in there. So I'm doing better. <laughs> I've read up on appendix since it happened because you know I'm pretty self-centered, so I usually don't care about other people but myself. So, but since you know you are my co-host, I did look up and see what an appendix, the symptoms, the you know what happens after surgery. It basically says that it makes you listless and lack of energy. So question one has to be asked like how are we going to tell 15 year appendix basically since i've known you you've been like that so like how did you know you had an appendix it's very fair i mean it was like you know i went searching internally and i kind of like felt this pain i was on the cusp because it felt like a manageable amount of pain but that's also why when people have high thresholds for pain that's where the appendix can burst once it bursts it's way more dangerous but i went drove myself to the er and probably an hour later, I couldn't have done it. Like, that's how fast it started deteriorating. I even passed out in the waiting room and hit my head, which I thought, okay, great. Now I've added like a concussion or brain injury, which so far, no signs of pointing that direction. But we caught it before it burst. But I went straight into the 
emergency surgery. I read that it takes three to five weeks to recover. So the fact that you're sitting upright, talking into a microphone, drinking coffee is you, you spell courage different ways, Connor. I'm, I'm basically in awe of you right now. So there you go. Well, I'm going to pass out soon, but we're excited for the show today. This is actually inspired by one of our listeners. So thank you. Call out to Ricky for suggesting this topic. And, you know, we felt like we needed to bring in some superpower to kind of help us with that. But let me set up the setting here is we're talking about the greatest of all time. And for an R&R segment, we're going to first talk about top three greatest athletes that we think are out there in other sports, then obviously transition into our own sport. And who do we think are the, the greatest athletes of the sport of squash? So, Bill, who we got on the show today? Well, since people are tired probably of hearing PJ, myself, and your opinion on things, we brought in someone who could offer a different perspective from a different part of the world, actually. Because, you know, as PJ, you know, if we ask him what the greatest athletes of all time, oh, yeah. he's going to name like three guys a, from the... A slant. Yeah, slightly slants. It's three guys from the UK that none of us have ever heard of or care about. This way, it adds a little something to it. So so we have Wael Al-Hindi, uh, former world number eight. 2010 U.S. Open champion, 2009 member of the Egyptian Team World Champions. He's an author of Ready, Set, Squash, and also now added to his resume, the founder of the Kinetic Racket Club in Delray Beach, Florida. Before we welcome him on, I just want to say, the reason I never go on any of these other podcasts, because I am invited all the time, as you could well imagine, is because how would they introduce me? I have like no resume whatsoever. It would be like, Bill. Here's Bill. So that's a great resume. So welcome, Wael El-Hindi. W- welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Bill. Thanks, Connor. And thanks, BJ, for having me. It's our pleasure. I got to add one other note because he's had such a distinguished playing history, but also he, as a coach, he's developed several national champions here in the U.S. So want to make sure that gets a call out because you are the unique breed that is a great player, but also has translated into great coaching. So, well, I'll talk to us about Kinetic Racket Club down in Delray Beach, Florida. Not exactly a hotbed of squash, but you're looking to turn it into such. So talk to us about the club. To be honest with you, it's been a really exciting, tiring journey, but it's about four months before the pandemic started, I decided to move here and just kind of like scout the area to see how can I get squash Obviously, I've been in New York for 12 years, and I wanted to just explore somewhere new. When I arrived, there was a small squash community. You know, it was there's a lot of potential, but every time I asked someone, they would tell me, oh, we tried, but we never got it done, and it never happened. And that got me a little bit more fired up, and I wanted to really find out why it was it hard to start a squash project in a place like here when, when it, there's a lot of potential. I mean, the weather is great. There's a lot of athletes. There's a lot of kids that have played multiple sports, and they're really good at it. I mean, tennis is very big here. Lacrosse is very big. Football is very big. Baseball is huge. So I wondered why we couldn't get something done down here. And obviously, it was something for me, being a squash player and a squash coach, who we were just closed in that almost, I would call, my own bubble for years and years and years, and I hadn't explored to know a lot about other things. And, and that was almost a blessing, but it just the amount of hours you put in to try to get something like this off of the ground, it's really, it's really a lot. But we've been having great turnout. We've been having a lot of the squash people that used to play and, and, and they stopped playing. Now they're back playing. So we're getting a lot of more traffic. And now we're going to start obviously creating a little bit more tournaments and try to obviously fly down people to see the space and train here and became like a destination for people to come and train. What I think is just make sure the listeners understand is, and I think you're on to the new wave of racket centers that are coming on. And the reason why I say that is because you have multiple racket sports. And I really think that that is going to be such a great way for 
for people to get exposed to squash. Like we all love squash here, but it's, you know, it's, we, we want to expose people to other racket sports and then bring them into squash. And especially in a place like Florida, where you're, you're lessening the leap to just squash versus get introduced to a variety of racket sports. So talk about the other racket sports you have at your club. Correct. So when I thought about the model, we just try to understand, like, how do I get kids to come and play squash? If you try to explain to them squash from the start, it may be for them and the parents, it will be some, it's like a hurdle you have to step over to get them to actually understand and respect the sport. Because for me, as a starter, I started playing tennis when I started playing before squash. And so we created tennis. We have the only indoor tennis court in a hundred mile radius. Wow. Which is a very obviously good value down here because most of the players, you know, it gets it's hot and it gets, you know, it's rained sometimes a lot in the hurricane season. So I think it's bringing us a little bit more value from little kids that just don't want to play outside in the sun for too much just to avoid sun, you know, sun and skin problems. So they'll come around and hopefully try to, you know, try squash and maybe we can convert some of them into that. The other is pickleball. It's the fastest growing sport in the U.S. It started as an older crowd to play the sport, but now I see the changes. A lot of more younger people start to play it, which I think it's a great thing for them also to start at least getting used to a lighter racket, a plastic ball, and then from there we can start moving into squash to try it. And I have no doubt when people try squash, they would like it, and it becomes one of the sports, one of the racket sports they'll enjoy. The third we have is paddle. The padel is a European-based sport that's actually getting constructed as we speak today. It's the first day the court just arrived from Spain. It's a sport that I fascinates me. I played a little bit back in the days when we used to travel to tournaments. I would just get on the court and play it, but it wasn't really as popular, and now it's taking off. And I thought it would be a great sport to mixture between tennis and squash for somebody that just wants a hybrid between them. And that's really the sport, if you think about it, it's like almost you're using a tennis, almost a smaller version of a tennis ball, a little racket that is not too heavy as well, and a ball can bounce off of a glass, which it could help a lot break down the momentum as well. Like, you know, some of the squash, even the high level squash players on the weekend, sometimes they feel like they want to do something, but we end up having to play overplay squash sometimes that we end up losing interest or feeling like a little bit burned out. But I feel like having a mixture of sports and racket sports involved that could get them excited again for another week of training for squash again if they would mix it up on the weekend and play some paddle, play a little tennis, play some pickleball. It just makes me happy feeling hearing four different sports at the same time and playing, and we got a little fitness area that just everybody can also exercise and do some workouts. It's a racket training facility, and I can't wait for you guys to come and visit. Yeah, I can't wait. And Padel, I'm a huge fan of, too, a bullish on it. I think it's going to take off in the U.S., just like pickleball has. and. I'm a rackets guy at heart too. So and I'm actually getting involved on the business side of Padel too. So I'm excited to see that growth. Awesome. So when Padel and Pickleball are in the Olympics before squash, it's you two we could point to, correct? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you say that, Bill, and I think that there's an opportunity to organize with the Olympics potentially behind racket sports getting in and being a voting block versus just an individual sport. But could be a pipe dream. Who knows? Yeah. Let's shift gears into the ratings and rankings section of this. And I'm going to have Bill kick it off talking about his top three athletes of all time. So I'm American centric. Obviously, I'm not a huge soccer fan. So it's going to leave out a lot of the guys in cricket and the other sports that uh, PJ and maybe YL are bigger fans of. So I'm going to stick with some main three. So to me, the 
top three athletes of my, and this is of my lifetime, because I don't want to get into the Babe Ruth's of the world and the Wilt Chamberlain's of the world who were before, before my, more PJ's era than my era. I was not born then, but yeah, the Babe Ruth thing kills me because you watch videos of Babe Ruth. He weighs like 700 pounds. He could barely walk. And like, he steps up in the balls, like a lobbed into him and hit it. And people call him like one of the greatest athletes ever. He may have been like, you know, a, a cornerstone of the sport, but come on. So I'm going to be more modern, as modern as I can be. So to me, the top three, Tiger Woods did more for his sport, I think, than possibly anyone in my era. He made golf mainstream. Golf was always kind of a mainstream sport, but he brought it to the television era. He raised prize purses up to a point now where if you look at like what Jack Nicholas, who was obviously a lot of people call him the greatest champion of all time, his career earnings really, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I looked it up at one point, his career earnings over his whole career in golf were like $5 million in purses. He was getting like $75,000, $60,000 to win a tournament. Tiger Woods brought those purses up to where now every major golf tournament, whether it's like an actual major or just a regular PGA Tour stop, the winning check is like $1.5 million. And these guys, as Kevin Kisner famously put it, guys who are finishing in 20th place are getting like sixteen, seventy, hundred thousand dollar checks. So they ask him, like, why would you come here if you don't think you could win? He goes, Well, 20th place still pays pretty nice. So Tiger, I think, did more for that sport. His stats, 683 weeks at world number one. I mean, that is off the charts. I think the second highest, if I'm not mistaken, I believe I looked it up, was Greg Norman had 331 weeks at world number one. So more than double, which is pretty incredible. I think DJ's at 134 for the active players, which is way down. And then you take Tiger's 82 wins, 15 majors in this competitive era, just absolutely incredible. So I'll go with Tiger Woods as the most transformative person and probably one of the greatest athletes of my era. Jordan, probably second, just the figure that he is. I mean, he, Michael Jordan, he still lives today. His, his logo is everywhere. He hasn't played in 10, 15 years and his logo is still everywhere. He is probably could be one of the few athletes who trans is besides American sports all over the world. I mean, he is an iconic figure and people, I don't think realize how good he was. The documentary that ESPN did last winter during the pandemic kind of like basically showed Jordan to a whole new era of fans who kind of thought that LeBron James, who is great, but never really like appreciated Jordan. Jordan was just kind of a name to them. But now they actually saw what he did and his accomplishments. And I'm just going to read, this is the, his second, after he retired. So Michael Jordan retired for, you know, nefarious reasons. People think it could have been gambling. It could have been, he's just sick of the sport and tried to play baseball, which he failed miserably. So he came back after being away from the sport for a couple of years and won three straight championships for the second time. And in that second run, as a 30-something-year-old, he won two MVPs, three finals MVPs, three scoring titles, three all-defensive first teams. And the biggest stat I think that we could compare to today, in that last three-peat run, he never missed one game. Not one game. Didn't sit out one game, which is incredible when you think about the load management that they're doing today in, in, in the NBA and in other sports where like these 22-year-old kids can't play three days in a row without like getting a rest because they don't, they want to save them for the season. Michael Jordan played three straight years, three straight championships without missing a game. So incredible. Was the, uh, the documentary you're talking about, was that the last dance? The last dance. Yeah. Did you, did... I saw that. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. yeah so lastly is Gretzky. I'm not a huge hockey fan, but <laughs> I was just looking up Wayne Gretzky's stats. So, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to leave you with this one and then let other people talk. Wayne Gretzky 
We didn't say this was a monologue, Bill. Well, I'll talk about his club. I want to talk about Wayne Gretzky. Come on. <laughs> yeah. This is my show, isn't it, Connor? <laughs> yeah, it is. it's your world. We're just living in it. Wayne Gretzky's total number of points, which in hockey is the combination of assists and goals. His total number of points is just shy of 3,000. The second person is Mark Messier who has 1,905 points, which means that if Wayne Gretzky, if we didn't count his goals and just counted his assists, would still be the all-time leading scorer in hockey. I mean, it's just, I mean, that that kind of stat is just phenomenal. I don't think it exists in any other sport. His dominance of the sport of hockey during his time is, I think, unparalleled. I think Tiger possibly, but as far as for impact for a sport that is throughout the world, such as, as hockey is, which is huge in the United States, huge in Canada. I mean, Gretzky's, some of his scoring records are just off the charts. And he was a winner. He won Stanley Cups. The one thing I did read about him, and it was hard to quantify because nobody would actually show me the year, in his last year of peewee hockey, which peewee hockey is really big in Canada. And in 71-game season, he scored 392 goals. Peewee hockey is a big deal in Canada. It's not like this is like some little somebody's backyard rink where you're playing. These guys, these are organized travel teams. So just incredible. So those are my three because I never follow the rules of this show. I'm going to throw out a fourth. I hate to do it because he's one of them. I'm also going to put a shot clock on this at some point. Hey, Connor, I have had four cups of coffee this morning, and we haven't done a podcast in three weeks because you had like a, you know, stubbed your toe. So I have a lot of stuff to say. So just just bear, just bear with me. I'm going to throw Tom Brady a bone only because of his age, 42 years old, still playing at the highest level of the toughest, probably the toughest sport in the world. I think we could all agree as far as injuries. And there's people who play football for three years and are considered superstars because they lasted three years. He's 42 years old and he's playing probably the most important position in sports in the United States and still winning and uh, playing at the highest level. So as much as I dislike him, as much as I dislike the Patriots and anything that has to do with the town of Boston, I got to throw Tom Brady into my pantheon. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Thanks. All for right. Coming. Thanks for coming. I appreciate it. While, while you were great. We're going to have you on again. It was awesome. See you next week. All right. We'll turn it over to Whale. <laughs> what are your thoughts? I agree with Bill. I'm one of them. Like, this was one of, obviously, Michael Jordan. And again, I saw the documentary, and he changed the way people want to play basketball. And actually, like, you know, even just growing up in Egypt, you know, basketball was not huge. And everybody wanted to play like Michael Jordan, but nobody can <laughs> or nobody could. But he just gave a lot of people a change of the game itself. It made it more fun. It made it more dynamic, even to places that basketball was not big at. So, on this, Michael Jordan is one of definitely my top three athletes of all time. My second is Diego Maradona. You know, to me, he changed football or soccer. You know, again, football was a little bit different before Maradona. And when he came in, the agility and the way, and obviously, due to, because he was a smaller player, but the way he was passing through every defense and creating threats on every other team, it, cre- it changed the, the way football is played and created a lot of players that are just different after him and, you know, including Messi, Ronaldo. I mean, these guys are now great players, but to me, Maradona was a change with that switch that made football or soccer a little bit different in terms of the ability that you can do on the court. He's definitely one of my top athletes. My third is Usain Bolt. To me, he changed the world of athletics and running and just, you know, the way he would run and technique and the way he was just changed the 100 meter and 200 meter numbers in in our eyes and we used to, you know we used to think a 10 second 100 meter was the greatest thing and then suddenly it became a nine second and uh, 
and just to understand, because I used to train a lot of track, and 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 until now, I take some of the, my students to the track. It just, it's just so hard to break through that second in any run, in a four hundred or a, or eight hundred or but a hundred meter a nine second. That to me, it's not human, and it's something that is just he's it's very very unique to prove the world that he can actually get this done naturally. You know, because a lot of athletes. Past in the past, they try to break that number, and they would always have, you know, some controversy around it with doping and and things like that. But to me, he's just a pure talent, and the way he he used his body to get to this number and to to break that record, it was it was just something that now it just changed the world of the running. And I and to me, he's my third favorite for sure. Quick question on Usain Bolt, and I think he's unique because the other two obviously are, are world famous, and I think if they walk down the street anywhere, you would recognize, well, Diego would probably cause a stir if you walked down the street right now. But I think if you saw them in person, you would know who they were, except for Usain Bolt. Like, he, he's not very recognizable. So I think he's unique among that. He's, he's made such an impact, as you described, but he's not like someone who, if I ran into him on, at a grocery store, I don't think I'd know who Usain Bolt was, where I would notice the rest of them. Just, so it's pretty amazing that even without that Q rating, as they call it, he still has transcended sport. I think because he's so quick, Bill. Nobody can actually have the ability to see him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. I might disagree with that, Bill. I think you say Bolt, you know, he's, he's kind of like the bolt of lightning in the flash, the victory salute that he does. He's almost got that same kind of aura as a Michael Jordan. You see the, you see Jordan's logo leaping through the air. I think you'll be surprised how many people would actually recognize you say Bolt. I know you want to be an athletics guy. No, 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 wait a minute. Now, if Usain Bolt was in a grocery store, like in the dairy aisle, and he did the like the lightning pose and stuff like that, then yes, I probably like he held up a head of lettuce like this, I would probably say yes, wow, that's Usain Bolt. But if he was just like walking down the street, come on. I'm going to disagree. He's the most recognizable man in athletics, in my opinion. Yeah, I would think he was also under marketed a little bit to me. You know, like I know he's been sponsored by Puma for a long time. But to me, he deserves to have his own line and he has to have, you know, like Michael Jordan has the Air Jordan. And this guy, he's done so much for that sport that to me, he's a little bit undervalued in terms of marketing. And I'm not sure why, to be honest with you, but I think for me, looking at him and looking at his, you know, his achievements, he's definitely up there with everyone. Okay. I disagree, but that's okay. That's <laughs> what I do. Wouldn't, wouldn't be a show without you disagreeing. What about you, PJ? I've got a couple of shot ones for you. It's interesting because Bill said he thought all of my kind of nominees would be British or I've actually in mind, I've got two Americans and a Brazilian in my top three athletes of all time. Actually, I'm going to go with Tom Brady. I think Tom Brady, quarterback for 20 years. Let's not forget the average career length of an NFL player is only 3.3 years. Tom Brady's for 20 years. The Pats had never won the Super Bowl prior to signing Brady. After signing Brady, they've actually won six times the Super Bowl. He then, when he leaves the Pats, he moves across to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers on a two-year contract. And then he wins his seventh Super Bowl title at 43 years of age. You look at his stats, they're, they're just absolutely phenomenal. And I also know that he's a very generous guy because when the Pats won their first Super Bowl, one of my clients from my early time in the, in the States, they owned a jewellery shop. And Brady actually went in and ordered... 22 Rolex watches, and he donated those to his fellow teammates for that first win. I think the guy's a legend. He's obviously devilishly good-looking. He's got an unbelievably stunning wife. He just is that 
know, quintessential American clean cut. And what he's done for the sport, I just think is it's absolutely phenomenal. If he didn't just win the Super Bowl at age 43, would he still be the answer for your number one? Yeah, regardless of the seventh win at 43 years of age, doing what doing what he's doing at his age, just his numbers and just what he brought to the game. He, he was compelling viewing, like, like all of these people that we're going to be talking about. Whatever it is that they're doing, you just you're fixated and you, and, you know you find yourself kind of entranced in what what it is they're actually doing. So for me, Brady, he's, he's one of those you know an absolute legend, a legend of the game. Secondly, I'm going to go for another soccer player, but this this time it's going to be Pele. I know that Wales went for Maradona. Maradona, I've done it for any of you soccer players out there. Maradona's obviously unbelievably talented, but he was very left-side dominant. So he was all pretty much everything took place on his left foot. All of his goals pretty much he scored, you know, left-footed. But the thing that kind of clouds a bit of a, a shadow over Maradona for me was he cheated, you know, in the World Cup. There was a famous... Ooh. Ooh. Oh, here we go. There's the English. There it is. Yes. In fact, and there was a brilliant documentary with the English soccer team who spoke about this particular hot point. The second goal that he scored in that match, I mean, you can watch it on YouTube now, was one of the best solo goals that I've ever seen in my life. And there's no disputing that. But the first goal where, you know, bear in mind he was like five foot six. He leaps up in the air over the top of the British goalkeeper at the time, Peter Shilton. And there's a great shot of literally he's got his fist up on the ball and then handles the ball into the into, into the back of the net. Then he's running around, you know, like he scored this unbelievable header. DJ, remember, we're talking about Pele right now. Let's let's get back, you know. The grudge episode was last week. Connor was, he was in the hospital with the toe, right? <laughs> but back to Pele, right? Three-time World Cup winner, which is an unbelievable cheer. First of those was at 17 years of age, Okay. He played for Brazil 90 or 92 occasions. Of those 92 appearances, he scored 77 individual goals for Brazil, which is, you know, the percentage there is ridiculous. Going through his career, he played 1,363 games. In those games, he scored 1,283 goals, which is, a, which is a, an, an average of 94%. Now, that is just, it's not even, you were talking about Summer Gretzky's stats. I mean, the, the closest to him, I think, was Maradona. And he's not even in the same ballpark as, as far as percentages go. Those stats, you know, speak volumes. But for me, the greatest of all time, and the way that I would kind of assess this is what somebody's done, not just for, for the sport, but for thinking life in general, so to speak. And that would be Ali, Muhammad Ali, sportsman of the 20th century, 61 fights, 56 wins, 37 by knockout. He was the original trash talker. Well, you know, again, it was that kind of compelling view. And you just, you were just, you know, so ingrained and engrossed into what it was he, he ever had to say. And then also what he did, the big controversy when he was supposed to be drafted into the military, you know, and, and he kind of stood by his ground and he faced five years in prison. They took all away of his boxing titles, but then that got overturned again in 1974. And what he did for the, the African-American race during the, the civil rights movement, I mean, it's just what he did in that particular, you know, extremely trialing and testing time, I don't think he'll ever be forgotten. So Interesting. So, so do you think, in Pele specifically, do you think in today's world, Pele could compete at the highest levels, just the way athletes are st bigger, stronger, things such as that? At his heyday, would he still be the star that he was? 
Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's when you it's tough to have that conversation of old athletes competing in the modern era, but I think he really does. I mean, look at Messi, right? Like who's who's very small but has transcended the sport. Pele around this probably a little different physicality, but he wasn't that tall. He distinguished himself in that era. So he, he was really, you know, he was he was the complete player, Pele. I think you could again suppose that you could you could put him into any era and he would have adapted and, and figured it out. Yeah, movie star too, in the Sylvester Stallone movie where they escape from prison. Yeah, Escape to Victory. <laughs> Is it called Escape to Victory? That's what it, I think it was just called Victory. You want to bet? Yeah, no, I don't gamble. Okay. As we talked about in the gambling podcast. Yeah, gamble. well, also there's sometimes between America and England there are different titles names, but um, like Hand of God and then Legitimate Goal like that. <laughs> they call it different stuff. I got it. I got you. I'm following. I'm following you. Okay, cool. All right, well, I'll jump in with my three. And a lot of them, no surprise that there's going to be some overlap here. So I'll go through them quickly. The first two for me, and I think this is more an indication of the sports I love and follow. It's Tiger Woods as well, for all the same reasons that Bill said. It just He transcended the sport and brought the Woods effect. I also think that Roger Federer for tennis has done the same. He's just an incredible athlete. He really helped sort of, you know, when Sampras was coming off, like he really helped pick up that torch and carry it forward and really help become that public figure. And then for my last three, I was kind of torn between Serena Williams, Michael Jordan, and Tom Brady. And I got to give the edge to Tom Brady as well for all the reasons we've said. Like, I think by him going to a different a different team and winning the Super Bowl in such quick order is just an amazing statistics. Agreed with all. And I think I would have thrown Serena in there if I wasn't, if her sportsmanship wasn't so poor. That's always been my knock against her is her sportsmanship is just so bad for such a great athlete and such a great winner. She never credits, like when she loses, she never credits her opponent. Always an excuse with her and just her abuse of umpires and things such as that. I just think, think just puts a little negative on her because obviously her accomplishments, they compare very well to the rest of the athletes we talked about. But before we jump on to squash, I just want to say the Usain Bolt thing is still sticking in my craw a little bit because PJ saying he's one of the most recognizable athletes in the world. So think of all the athletes that we just talked about, PJ, all the people, put them all up in a lineup, like with, with their headshots, just their headshots, and then take like 10 people off the streets and say, can you name who each one of those people are? Who do you think would be the one that they could least name? Usain Bolt. Thank you. Okay. End of, let's go, Connor. Let's go to squash. <laughs> then I'm a point proven. Thank you. <laughs> Well, yeah, we're going to transition into the main part of this uh, breakdown and talking about the greatest within the sport of squash. And let's do this slightly differently. Where let's quickly go around the room just saying who we think our top threes are, and then we can dive into what that is. So with the guest here, I'll let our guest lead. Who are your top three? So this is a very hard one <laughs> because obviously every era and every generation had its own great players. And, and for me to just trying to, you know, say who's the greatest, it's very hard because you got the Janshire, you got Jahangir, you got the Rodney Martin, you got a lot of players that, you know, uh, Jeff Hunt, you got a lot of players that are really... You can just go through the entire list if you want to read them. <laughs> I haven't really watched him play too much. So for me, I've watched Janshire growing up and that was, the, you know, I didn't watch Jahangir life a lot and I didn't see him at his prime. So it's hard for me to put it to perspective. But... To me, the greatest player that I saw transitioning the game, I was fortunate enough to be very good friends with him and shared with him the room for a long time was, was Amr Shabana. To me, and the only reason I'm giving him this because the way he played the game was obviously very different and he kind of caught the game from the transition. He was 
the game was a little slower, but it was still very, very finesse and a lot of skillful players. And there was some of them were very physical, but then the games started to get faster. And obviously the rules changed, the ball changed, the tin changed. And he adjusted very well to still continue to win, even though he didn't, he wasn't the strongest, he wasn't the tallest player, but he was very skillful. And the way he played the game and played tactically, I've learned from it a lot how to basically not waste so much effort, but still get a maximum result. And to me, that's why I would put him as the greatest player in my eyes. It's just the way he played, it was different than a lot of people. Obviously, the guys before him were still great at squash players and they're still legends of the game. Nowadays, there's still some really good players that I'm also a big fan of watching. But, but for me, he was, just, he was just a different player. So, Connor, when you said just name the player and don't tell why, like, <laughs> I, I think while I was, I think I, I'm just curious. So I, think I don't he, want to be unfair, though. I don't want to be unfair. Like, there's a lot of players before. You know, it's, it's a very sensitive part because, you know, there's a lot of great players out there. That's why we had you on. We need you to take a stand here while we have no skin in the game. We say we, we say a name. Nobody's going to care because we're just a bunch of buffoons talking on a podcast. You're going to have to see these people and, like, look them in the <laughs> eye, basically. So. Oh God! Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes a lot. Who else you got in your top three? I get three, or just the greatest player? One from women, one from men. You have three slots. Three slots, and you're gonna run into every one of these people in the next five <laughs> years. So just tread lightly. The other player on the women's side that I like a lot is Ranim Ranim Elwali. I think she's one of the players that also developed the game very well, very well spoken, very well represented of the sport. She played almost the mixture of men squash. And she changed women's squash a little bit into a little bit more of an aggressive game and a little bit more faster, a little bit more volleyer. And to me, she just played different. And she's also one of the greatest players in my eyes of all time in squash, women's squash for sure. Number three. I think I'll give it to Rami Ashul. Rami is, he's definitely a player that is not an every day that you're going to see this. And I don't know when are we going to see the next Rami Ashul is. I mean, he's just, the things he's done on court is very different and very I mean, very unorthodox. I mean, you can't even teach it. So we get into this controversy sometimes with a lot of players and a lot of things. And, I, and you say, well, Rami cannot be the greatest player because it's hard to teach and it's hard to take his game and transfer it to others. Well, that's true. But for me, because he's just a freak of nature and the way he played and the way he conducted himself, even when he was down and, and tried to manage to play some ridiculous rallies and ridiculous shots that we can't figure it out until today, to me, he's obviously one of the best players of all time as well no egyptian bias at all there that's great <laughs> <laughs> like you said bill he's also pumping to these people yeah it, hey look bill i don't blame i just you know is the way maybe the way i see the game is a little different <laughs> oh, oh really <laughs> let's go into the other squash superstar here pj who, who would hit your top three I'm going to, for the first time in a very long time, do exactly as I'm told. I'm going to give you the three names. <laughs> I'm going to go with Jahangir Khan, Heather McKay, and Jonah Barrington. Did you see all of those folks play in their heyday? I only saw Jahangir play in his heyday, actually. Heather and uh, Jonah. I've seen Jonah on court, but I've never say, uh, seen him play in a, in a competitive match or competitive match. Since you do have the floor, tell us why your picks are correct and why L's are just biased because he's Egyptian. <laughs> I never insinuated that mine were correct, but I'll just give you a very quick rundown, okay? We'll start off with Jahangir Khan. We've got the 555 unbeaten record. And just try and get your head around this, okay? 
five and a half years, he didn't lose a match. For four and a half of those five and a half years, he didn't drop a game. Six-time world champion. Ten consecutive British Opens. Now, to win a major event of that magnitude, British Open, not necessarily in that era, but it was the equivalent of the World Championships. It was the biggest event on tour. He won that 10 years in a row. And I think this is pretty cool. In 1984, he actually had, he was on a Pakistani postage stamp. He had, he actually had his own picture on a postage stamp. And he also, they also did the same for him in Japan in 2017. And that's when you know you're big time. Yeah. <laughs> when yeah. they start putting your picture on the postage stamp, you, you know you've hit the high society. So, I mean, what Hanger done for the game? Everybody was talking about that record. I've even spoken to all the greats that were around during that era, and it became a case of how long they could keep him on the court. Not whether they would win, but, you know, could they take a game? Or And Robert Graham, actually, from the UK, was the first guy who actually took a game in that particular run. But it was a question of how long that they could keep him out there. That, for me, is just a joke, trying to get your head around that sort of... That, impact that he had on the game during that particular time was was just phenomenal so pj just for you watching him when he played like because for me you know it's hard to watch him on tape i never watched him live and it's hard to watch him on tape and understand what he would do well against players but for you because you watch him live would you describe him as a player what would you think jahangir's most why was he so indestructible on court why wouldn't anybody beat him the way that I could probably explain it where you could compare, and you've, you've witnessed this firsthand yourself when you've played against El Shabagi, okay? Yeah. The pace that Mo plays at, it's very fast, it's furious, at times inaccurate. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. The pace that Jangi created, also with the technology he had, the pace was, it was just unrelenting. You even saw people in the warm-up reverting deeper and deeper into the back of the court. So it would be like having an accurate Mohamed El Shabagi on the court. So the pace that he injected, there, was, there wasn't too much kind of use of the, the height of the front wall that you see now, but everything was pretty much below the, the service line. But it was just a continual barrage of power and aggression, but accurate. And that was what made Jahangir. And if you look at his build, he had such a fantastic physique. He was powerful. He had a low center of gravity. Movement into the front two corners was very dynamic. One of the, I mean, arguably one of the best backhand drops in the game. Just one of the best mentors. To, to, I can't, I still, it just mind boggle. It's mind boggling. The four and a half year not dropping a game and five and a half years not losing a match. To have that mental, and you've competed, at a, you know, world-class level yourself you know how hard it is every time you step on the court you have days where you're not necessarily bringing your a game or you don't feel particularly good you may have a niggling injury he's come through all of that and it's just it's amazing ridiculous yeah it's ridiculous i mean this is one thing i would wish that i would go you know back in time just to watch him play live because the quality of the tape video that we watch when he was playing it didn't really do him fairly and that's why you know, for me, just to, you know, obviously witness something like that live and understand the pace that you're talking about, because when you watch it on video, it doesn't really do him fairly because the ball seems so slow and the movement seems so slow. But that's why I asked you this question. And now I completely understand when you compare it that way. Now it makes more sense that you would just obviously just, I mean, hammering everybody with accuracy. 
Just to quickly backtrack a little bit, you're talking about Rami, who I, I love watching Rami play and what he's done for the game, I agree, has revolutionised it. But I've watched Rami Ashore win some of his games, single games in five, six minutes, seven minutes. I watched a video I was what, with Robert Owen a couple of years ago. We were up in Birmingham. We put on, I think it might have been the Scottish Open, Jan Khan played Chris Dittmar. And it wasn't just pitter-patter up and down the walls. They were utilising all four corners of the court. After seven minutes, while American scoring, it was one point all. So, you know, I've seen Rami destroy people as he can in seven minutes, one game. They were one all after seven minutes. You need to watch the quality of the squash. And it's not like these guys were just chipping it up and down the wall and it was boring, boring. There were both. There were drops. There were exchanges taking place all over the court. So, you know, and Jahangir was in, was in the throes of that era. And it was, yeah, it was, um, it was unbelievable. So, PJ, since you did watch him so closely, was there a fissure in his game that, like, now looking back, someone in the modern era would say, hey, I see that, and I could, t- I could take advantage of that, and I could probably beat him? No. Well, <laughs> Plain and simple, no. Well, it's what he's describing. He's saying Muhammad is a buggy and accurate. <laughs> That's very true. Right. So talk about Heather Mackay then briefly. Okay. Now, we're talking about a few stats today. And again, just try, try to put these into context. Context. She was professional for 20 years, from 1960 to 1981. In that 20-year career, she only lost twice, once in 1960, once in 1962, okay? 14-time consecutive Australian champion, 16-time consecutively British Open champion. Now, as I said before, the British Open was considered the World Championships during that era. In that 16-year run, she only dropped Two games, okay? Two games in the entire 16-year period. Never dropped a game in the final, okay? And I'm just going to read to you, (laughs) right? These are the results from the finals, okay? 1968, she beat Beverly Johnson, 9-love, 9-love, 9-love. 1969, she beat Fran Marshall, 9-2, 9-love, 9-love. She beat Marcia Roche in 1970, 9-1, 9-1, 9-love. Jenny Irving in 71, 9-love, 9-3, 9-1. 72, 9-1, 9-1, 9-2. In 73, she won 9-1, 9-love, 9-1. In 74, she beat Sue Cogswell, very well-reputed player herself from England, 9-2, 9-1, 9-2. She beat Marion Jackman, 9-3, 9-1, 9-5 in 1975. She beat Sue Newman, 9-2, 9-4, 9-3. And then in 1977, she beat Barbara Wall, 9-3, I mean, to dominate a sport in that particular fashion, it's just absolutely outrageous. They should have stopped it at some point. They should have stopped it and won in the final and just say, we're going to have to start with a handicap or something. Because to me, to me that that's a biased game. I mean, she's just crushing everybody. I mean, that's like... We also played hockey for Australia in 67 and 71, three-time US racquetball champion, five-time Canadian champion. So obviously a bit of an all-rounder as well, just, you know, a freak athlete. So I'm going to ask Wael first. So Wael, you named your top players. Tell me this, the top player you ever played against, you ever stepped on court against, and, and who would you say that would be? Would it be Armour or would it be someone else that you've had in, in a match that you've played? Well, uh, you know, the the new era, obviously, I played with all these guys, you know, like Shurbagi, Rami, uh, you know, uh, and before that, I played the generation before me, UPJ, 
you know, John White, Barada, Jonathan Power, Peter Nichol. I mean, I would not want to drop a name because all these guys were just different. David Palmer. I mean, all these guys were really had different, unique styles. And it, it was just every one of them was really tough to play. We were just In my era, it was a little bit more of the tactics were m- mainly more than the physicality. Now, it's obviously a mixture of both, but sometimes, as, as BGZ explained, Muhammad Shabagi's game, sometimes the tactics doesn't take much. It's just the physicality that takes over, which you sometimes get a little bit of a lower quality of, of, of shot selections and matches because the players these days, they can just pick up everything. I mean, some of just the shots that they pick up is unbelievable. To phrase it a different way, who are you least optimistic? And it could be just styles of play or that kind of stuff, but you're stepping on court. We always think that we're going to win. Otherwise, why step on court? But who are you least optimistic about? potentially beating. I didn't like playing Greg Gualti at all. It's a great answer because we're not officially the anti-Greg Gualtier podcast, but we lean anti-Greg Gualtier. We'll put it that way. I didn't like playing against him. He volleyed a lot. He was just very hard to play. He makes you angry on the court. And I didn't like to play in that headspace. And obviously it's a smart thing for him to play because he just gets you frantic and, and you just want to, you know, he gets you scrambling on the court. And that's the one game I didn't like to play. So I'd say he's one of my least players that I wanted to compete against for sure. Did he ever scream at you in an elevator? He did not. He would drink okay. me to the elevator button. Though. That's the problem. Okay. Right. He does everything so fast that, you know, you know when he, we were just talking the other day with Diego Elias, and we were just talking about how fast he eats. Literally, you sat with him in the restaurant, you order the food. By the time you just have a sip of water, you're just about to dig in your food. He goes, okay, we go. I'm like, we go where? <laughs> we just started to eat. So that's that. He likes to do everything with fast pace off of the court, too. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. I, think, I don't think you'll be sampling any of his food. I know that you like to try everybody's food. <laughs> I don't think Greg and I will be sitting down for dinner anytime soon. But no problem. We did get our Greg Gaultier bashing in, which was always a, a prerequisite to every podcast, which is awesome. Connor, why don't you go ahead and give your top three players? Because, you know, I've only been following the squash for maybe. 17, 18 years. So my, my picks are probably not as learned as you guys. So Connor, go ahead. Yeah. And I would say the same thing, like 2004 is really when I started getting exposed to the, the top levels like you guys. And so, you know, for me, I am giving some respect to sort of like the established dominance and that has to be Jahangir Khan and Nicole David for me just within, and again, more in the modern era, I would say. And then with the third person being Rami Ashore, who I think gets that distinction for changing the game. He was at inflection point for me when I saw it, really helping this new generation of squash players come in. So it's again, it's I, I do say this humbled by the two other gentlemen on the call who have more context and history there. But those are just kind of who I see. As a fan, I agree with Nicole David. I, I had her as my number one, actually, because it, when I first started following squash, when it was a surprise when she would lose. So we talk about Jahangir Khan's streak and all that, but like every, every tournament, like it was like, wow, Nicole David didn't win that tournament. It wasn't like a surprise that she won is like that she lost. And, and then you also take the person that Nicole David is and, you know, uh, you know, you hate to judge this on like the person instead of their accomplishments, but she was also one of the nicest people ever to step on the court and was just so gracious in every way she performed. So it's hard for me to, and again, her accomplishments are off the charts. We talk about Tiger Woods with his 
360 something weeks of world number one. Nicole David was world number one for 111 months. <laughs> 111 months. That's ridiculous. So I always pick her. And then Rami's the only other one that I could throw in and throw any context to is because he was the one that I noticed running US Opens and, and other tournaments that like there was a day match, like on a Tuesday, like a first round match where typically there'd be like three people in the stands. Nobody would come watch because most people are working and stuff. People would make a point to go see Rami play. Like Rami was was appointment viewing. So he he would put people in the stands. And I don't I don't know if there's been anyone as great as Farag is, as great as Sherbagi is, as great as a lot all these modern players are, and they are great. I don't know if there's anybody who has that factor, that it factor that Rami has in my lifetime. Hopefully there there will be somebody like that going forward. My last person that I'm gonna throw in, and, and she's probably not in this conversation now, but I'm thinking if we did this podcast 10 years from now, 15 years from now, I'm thinking Nor El Sherbini would be number one on my list. I always look at her accomplishments and then realize she's 25 years old or 26, however old she is. Just absolutely crazy. So I think looking forward, I think that she's going to go down as one of the all-time greatest squash players in history. And, you know, injuries aside, so. Early pick, early pick. She's still got plenty to offer. Um, I mean, I first saw her playing a, a British Open when she was 16 years of age, and you could see the potential. But from where she's gone since then, and while alluded to earlier, I feel that Nicole David, arguably statistically one of the greats. Unfortunately, I feel that she did struggle a little bit with the adaptation of the lower tin. These new players, when they came in, that the scoring didn't really... Nicole was the best female mover I've ever seen. You know, she was so light, nimble and quick. When the likes of, El, uh, of Wallini came along and there was then Shabini that had just that physicality and took... Nicole out of that rhythm. That was when you see Shabini, as you said, and Raneem have, for me, taken the game to the highest level of, of women's squads that, that we've ever seen. Would Nicole have adapted if she was younger? You no, know, when the tin change happened, if she was a bit younger, would she have still been one of the top players? I think she would have done, yeah, because I, I mean, I, I know how hard Nicole worked and still works to this day. I, I think she would be one of those players that you could put into any era and would have adapted and changed her training methods and her style to, to suit the modern game. I think she got caught in that in that transition across where it was hard for her to change her particular mindset and her way of playing pretty much overnight because that was how the, the, rule, the rules came in, you know, pretty quickly. Um, you know, down to the 17-inch tin, the, the 11 scoring, and it was, it was a hard transition for her. I agree. Yeah. I think we need to remember, and if this, if it wasn't, you know, down to this chap, none of us would be actually sitting here having this conversation. And that would be Jonah Barrington. For sure. Now, Mr. Squash, what, what Jonah did, he transitioned the game from amateur status into professional. Originally, it was a group of six or eight players from Egypt and, and Australia and, and Jonah himself would go travel around the world playing all of these exhibition matches and that then turned into the tour and that was when the game kind of moved across. Now what we're seeing today is all a result, you know, six-time British Open champion. He won the British National Championships at 39 years of age. And he invented ghosting. So many of the things that the players are doing today is kind of an improvisation or an, in addition to what Jonah started all in himself. He was the first man and as the pro game in full flow now is because of, because of that great man. So 
is not to be forgotten in my opinion. Jonah Barrington for sure. I mean, Jonah, I, I owe him a lot. I mean, he's changed my game a lot. And just talking to him and about, you know, the journey of, of him helping squash and just, you know, about life itself. I mean, I owe him for a lot of me being a, a good player and a, and a good coach. I mean, without him, I think being involved in my career, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make it to the top 10. And I don't think I would be the coach I am today. Again, the guy is a pure legend. He fights and digs deep until today, to be honest with you. He just leads by example. And until today, he would just, you know, the, the way he trains today, it's almost like he's going back on tour. Like I, every time when I was there and I was him training, I was like, what's going on? I mean, it's like, are you entering the next tournament? Because if you, you won the British Open at 39, you would think, oh my God, maybe he's thinking about it. Going back again, at like 69 to play the pro tour. <laughs> so, so that's his mindset, you know, and it just, being there with him every day just change your mindset in the way you live life for sure. I would totally agree with that too. And I was close to putting him in my top three as well. I read his book and it was just such a, it was pretty early on in, in my just getting exposed to the sport. And he, even though it had been written decades ago, it still was so relevant to where I was just touching the sport for the first time. So it really did resonate. Yeah, murder on the squash court. Yeah. I've seen paperbacks versions of that on eBay going for about two hundred and twenty. I know. I I hear it might be coming back out though. So. I'm not going to say too much, but there's there are rumors. Yeah, there are rumors. <laughs> we tried to have someone who's very close to him on the podcast seventeen times, and every time he said yes and then said no at the last second. So we don't we won't again we won't mention his name, but yeah. You know, it's all about the money to him. You need to. Yeah, the appearance fee. The, the appearance but, fee, for sure. He, he, he chastised me for not giving him enough notice this last time. So after giving him three weeks' notice the first time, which he bailed, then they give him less notice. He said, no, this is not enough notice. So if we could find out, like, what the sweet spot is with him, like, what notice we actually need to give to get him on the show, that would be great. And maybe we could talk about Jonah Barrington a little bit more. Before we wrap up, Bill, I also, because uh, I just mentioned an author and I wanted to give Whale, who's also a, an author within the squash world, a chance to just quickly talk about his book and what it's about. The idea of the book was when I was in New York, we were trying to get the information to a lot of starting squash players or even the little bit of the basics in a fun way to try to get it. Instead of just having to go in court, you know, utilizing myself a little bit more, trying to just share some of the information that helped me break down things during my lessons, and I managed to obviously have one of my great students from New York. Her name is Sonia Sasson. She was a very nice student of mine that she used to ask me to write everything that we did at the lesson. And I said, you know, at some point we were talking, I said, you know, I think maybe we should share this with, with people, you know, with, with some, some of the players. And she's like, yeah, let's, you know, let's try to do it. So we got an illustrator. The idea started to become a little bit more serious, and we started, you know, breaking it down into a little bit more easier you know, easier steps for every shot. Obviously, it needs a little bit more. That book is mainly just, I would say, for a beginner, kind of a little advanced player. But after that, obviously, it needs to be more, a little bit more detailed. And I was hoping to help some of the coaches when kids start, instead of them just coming to the club first day just to try to take a racket and hit a ball, maybe they should just understand a little bit about how the fundamentals could be a little bit more fun because some of the squash books out in the market, I was, I was looking at them and they're just, they're either too long or they're either not, not fun to kind of go around and, 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 and find more, you know, make it a little bit more interesting for kids to start it out. And so far the book's been doing great. And I think a lot of kids that are just haven't played squash, they've been, uh, 
They've been really giving us really good feedback about it. And they're eager to try the sport, which is something that uh, for me, that was the main, the main goal, obviously, to try to get more people and more people to kind of like get introduction to squash before they step on court. Great. And where can people go and buy the book? So the book is on Amazon. It's on Amazon, obviously, for the U.S. You know, you can find it on our website, readysetsquash.com. That's when the book is available also on the website. And, and for, for international people, they can just go to the website and it will direct them straight to where the country's, um, you know, where they can find it through their local bookstores. We have it also in Barnes & Nobles. They sell it, so either online or the hard copy, some of the stores would have it as well. And if you're down in the Florida area and looking for a game of squash, where could you go play? The Connecticut Racket uh, Club, and uh, I will be uh, greeting you by the door once you come in. <laughs> All right, we look forward to it. PJ, any parting words? No, it's a great show again, boys. Interesting topic. Thanks again to Connor. What was the chap's name who sent the question in? I, I thought it was an absolutely brilliant uh, topic today. That was one of our biggest fans, Ricky from Philly. Ricky from Philly is one of our fans. It's fantastic, but uh, no, interesting. Hey, quick time out to hear a word from our sponsor. Biosports shoes are designed for racket sport players by racket sports players with the knowledge that if a shoe can withstand the rigors of squash, then it will have no problem holding up for any other indoor court sport. No matter what your sport, the Bia Force X is the performance shoe of choice for competition at the highest level. So it would mean a lot if you go to biasports.us. That's B-I-A sports with an S dot U-S. Check out their website. But even better, take their new Biaforce X for a test drive. Bill, welcome back to another fan follow-up. I'm excited. We haven't done this in a little while, you know, for obvious reasons. But um, yeah. I'm excited to dig in. Are we going to talk about as much as I like the fan follow-up? Or is there discussion of a rebranding, possibly? It's just based on, on the fact that, you know, we, you're not really around that often anymore. And so instead <laughs> of, we went from once a week to once every two weeks to now we're pretty much, I don't know, what is it, quarterly, um, biannual? No, I I would, look, it's a good question. We've talked about what's the frequency. I think we could maybe go to uh, once a week. I definitely want to try and do minimum every two weeks. But yeah. It's, it has been tough with uh, juggling a bunch of things, but you know I think you, you brought this up, and I think it, it might be time. As much as we do love the fan follow-up, I think uh, a creative rebrand might be the... You know, yeah, actually, you you came up with it, so I'm going to turn well, it over to you. Well, it was a pretty, it was a layup, basically, based on your um, medical uh, mishap, medical, um, you know, your, your issue that you had. Um, so we're going to change the name of the fan follow-up to The Appendix. So um, pretty clever. When I proffered that to you, you scoffed at it and said, pretty good, which... By the way, it just shows you're jaded at my humor. And like I, I told like six other people and they're like, wow, that's really creative and really clever. That's and true. you said, you said, wow, that's pretty good. Thanks. It's pretty good, which so, is, you know, I, I grade on a curve. So that means well done. Well done. Well done. So great episode. Um, really appreciate YL coming on and PJ coming on and, and really kudos to, to Ricky from Philadelphia who suggested that topic, talking about the greatest athletes of all time. We may have went a little nuts on the uh, on the greatest athletes from other sports, but YL's and Paul's uh, insight on in talking about Jahangir Khan was fascinating to me. One of the few times I I didn't want to jump in at all because I didn't want to step on their conversation. Yeah. So it was uh, it was really, really great. So interesting. It, also, it quickly highlighted for me. I mean, like PJ just has such a depth of understanding of the sport and to really help describe it so well could understand what that meant. I was yeah. 
blown away. Yeah, yeah, liquor and squash. That's PJ's two things that he knows well. So I'm not sure where that's going to get him in. So well, I guess it's got him. And pretty house far. music. And we house haven't music. even touched on that. I know we do have to delve into his DJing. It's hard to be looking at him because he's like such a clean cut looking person. Like the <laughs> you and I are on this podcast. My hair is like growing out of my hat right now. You have like a ponytail yeah. and a bun. And we we know little to nothing about music. And PJ's and like rough. yeah, PJ looks like a U.S. senator and he's like <laughs> doing house house music DJing. So it's kind of kind of weird. But great episode. So it was it was interesting that and I not PJ. But uh, while myself and you uh, all jumped on and said that Rami was one of our top three players of all time. And um, the, the only thing I got to say, and I, I hate to do this, but I I, I I held off on doing it with Wilder there because he, he's Egyptian. And I, I think I already gave him too much a hard time for being so biased, so biased. He literally would have named like 100 Egyptians before he named one other player. So I, before I jumped on him, but Alguna two weeks ago or a week ago, whenever it was. Rami singing between like games and after the women's final. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what to think about it. I mean, I just, I'm just trying to relate. I mean, he's think about he's like, we're talking about him being one of the greatest players of all time in squash. I just like pictured like Michael Jordan, like at an NBA finals coming out at halftime and like lip syncing, like to some song, like, I don't know. I just, it was unprecedented and, and nobody talked about it online. Nobody like said, what the F was that? And that's all I was thinking. I think I pinged you and said, what the F was that? And I pinged like a couple of my colleagues. I said, are you watching this? Like, this is like, this is weird, like really odd. And I, I you know, not shocking, Bill, I'm going to take the opposite side. I can, it's awesome. I think it also highlights that Rami just is truly an entertainer. I mean, think of what he did with the, with our, with the sport of squash. He's also done modeling. You know, for a bunch of brands. But, but, and but has he done modeling after the women's final at Oguna? And when he modeled, did he? I mean, he didn't even sing. He lip synced, and he like actually stopped a couple of times. He, he was, well, he can sing. Uh, can he? I mean, yeah. why you why you lip syncing then? It's a good question. I don't. I I'm not going to go into the intricacies of like the production and and obviously there's the scandal with um what was his sister's name the lip syncing mishap on, M- on Saturday Night Live. Um, so lip syncing always comes with like challenges, but. So, know. so Millie Rami Ashore, or, or would it be Rami Vanilli? Is that, will that be his new name? I mean, put it this way. I, I think it also seriously highlights like there's like squash is so small that nobody picked up on it. So there's no memes of that. There's no people making fun of it online. Like late, if squash was big, like Stephen Colbert would have like made fun of him and Jimmy Kimmel would have made fun of him. Um, just like I am, but you know, just saying. So I, we're going to get off that because we, we, we I love go it. the opposite. I, I Rami, keep going. Rami I Vanilla. Keep I like it. Rami Vanilli. I think that's good branding. That's all I'm saying. So, so the other thing I talked about after the show was I, you know, my friends, most of my friends are big sports fans. So, and it was interesting, the Usain Bolt discussion and things such as that. So talking to all Americans, obviously, mostly Americans, my friends, um, talking about the greatest athletes of all time. And I, I was curious what they thought. And I took the three that I, I had suggested and said, Hey, Tiger Woods for golf. And they were like, well, Nicholas has more majors and, you know, uh, Tiger doesn't even have the most wins overall. And Michael Jordan, people now are like currency bias saying LeBron James is as good as Michael Jordan, if not better, Kobe Bryant better than Michael Jordan. So there was arguments among there and all fair arguments. But the one thing nobody disagreed on was Gretzky. And a lot of my friends are big hockey fans. And they said, there is no argument with Gretzky. Gretzky is far and away the best hockey player ever. And there's not even another person in the discussion is how that went. So um, it was interesting that if you look at Gretzky, he is the gold standard for his sport. And that says a lot because there's not a lot of people in sports that you could say 
you are the greatest at that sport and have no argument. And I'm not sure who even would be number two, to be honest with you, behind Gretzky. So so it was interesting. It was cool. Cool show. Really interesting. Listening to PJ and Wow talk about Jonger was just fascinating to me. It was mm-hmm. really, really fascinating. So it was awesome. So even though we're calling this append- the appendix, we do have some fan follow-up. Um, Quick, quickly, because this kind of segues into it, we, we want to thank... Uh, you know, Ricky for, again, that suggestion and anyone else, you know, feel free to reach out. We, we love getting some of your suggestions in there, either on topics and or guests. We have a, some interesting guests that we've been lining up and we're not going to divulge right now, but you know, we're yeah. always welcome to hear squash radio at gmail.com. That's squash radio at gmail.com. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, fan follow-up. So our last episode, which, you know, again, seems like it was years ago was grudges. And I, I got some fan follow-up on, on grudges. Well, uh, before we go into that one, okay. we also have a, a preceding fan follow-up oh, Okay, got that, that got missed. So I want to bring it to uh, your attention. This is, uh, related to the, um, pizza episode of, uh, from a little while back. <laughs> a and little it's, while back. Uh, look, Hey, look, Bill, for picking up fans, and they're going back through the archives. It's a good, it's not a bad thing. I probably it's, not, it's a great thing. Right. So this is Catherine from Chicago. She was asking about reheating pizza and wanted to get your take on it, or like, what's the best way to do it? Sure, sure, hundred percent. Reheat pizza all the time. I mean, during COVID, like you couldn't go sit in a pizza restaurant. So because now that I'm vaccinated and there's you know mandates on restaurants have been lifted in my area, anyways, I've actually gone out for pizza at restaurants twice since then. And it's just been a fantastic experience. I went to Modern Pizza, which is one of the meccas we talk about on that show. And uh, it was just it's just extraordinary to be sitting back down eating pizza. But to answer her question, yes. So I have a stone, a pizza stone that I've had. I think I've now had it. My wife gave it to me. We've been together for 30 some odd years. And one of the first years we were dating, she gave me a pizza stone for Christmas. And I still have that pizza stone. It is jet black, we use it for everything. We use it all the time. I'm, hopefully it won't break because people tell me that they shatter after a certain amount of years, but it's been 30 something years. So what I do is I pizza, whether it's leftover, just coming back from the shop that day or the next day, frozen, what, however it is, I throw that pizza stone in the oven on 500 for a half an hour and put yeah. the pizza on it. And it comes out, I guess, not like it is at the shop because, you know, if you're sitting down at the restaurant, but as good as it could get. So I am I am 100% for reheating pizza on a stone. Otherwise, it's tough if you do it on foil or do it just like on the grill or anything like that. It doesn't come out as crispy and as good, but on the stone, very solid. So uh, all, I, all, all for reheating pizza. And how long? Depend. You know, if, if the stone 500 for a half an hour, we did it the other night. We had Pepe's Pizza um, the other night and we brought it home early and we had it for dinner and three minutes. Yeah, I'll do the same. Uh, I'll do 450, and we've got like this cast iron baking tray. It's a Le Creuset, uh, yeah. if you want to be specific. Yeah. And we put that in. I usually do 450. And even, in fact, the night that we get the pizza, because by the time you're getting to the couple slices down, I I, I, I put it in there, and I'll, I'll heat it. So like two to three minutes. Yeah, yeah same a- thing. absolutely. So yeah. It brings it, it to life. It does. You know? It does. It, yeah. And, and that, that shows like pizza you could bring home and reheat. It, it's still good, like Pepe's and, you know, a bunch of the places around here. So, yeah appreciate that question and uh um but but yeah keep not, coming yeah not not timely but still still a good question um <laughs> all right so i cut you off grudges the latest grudges episode it sounds like you got some yeah we got a lot of fan follow-up for grudges some very personal so um a guy calling himself at delhi manager nyc emailed me and said hey i heard the episode about your grudge I just want you to know that, yes, your $25 a week you were uh, spending in my deli was keeping us afloat. And since you left, we, we unfortunately have gone out of business. Um, so, you know, I think there might have been some sarcasm in there. And, you know, and now I think about it, 25 bucks a week is probably not that much for a deli. But, hey, pre- appreciate it at Deli Manager in New York City. So, um, 
Hugh from New York City. Got a got a uh, Hugh NYC. Hugh NYC. The the real Hugh NYC said, "Hey, I apologize for being so flaky, uh, um, and I I will try better." He goes. He said, "By the way, uh, I have to cancel our hit this week." Oh wow! Yeah, which is you know. Do you think it was actually him or his manager? No, I think I think it might have been him. But I mean, just the fact he's canceling our hit this week is is typical. So um, I'm not sure Mm -hmm. how seriously he's taking that grudge. But and and he's the one who set up the hit and the one who like made me plan it and get the court and and he's listening. And he's a big listener. And he's a big listener. So there you go. Uh, last is Carla from O'Brien's. Um, Carla, who's still at O'Brien's after all these years. I mean, it was like 20 something, like, I don't know, long, like 15, 16 years ago. Carla's still there. Just said cheers. So Carla said cheers. So I don't know if that's a, an old TV reference or not, or that she was trying to be funny. But Carla said cheers. She didn't apologize. She didn't say she was wrong. She didn't say uh, I was wrong. She just said cheers. So thanks. Carla. So we're on the grudge list. Like, does this move the needle at all for you? No, no, I, I just, you know, it, at least they're acknowledging it. So, so the, the best part of this, of the whole grudge thing. So my wife who does not listen to the show, I don't know, believe me. She I, has she's a little bit. She listened to episode two and then like now, now yeah, she just, that's fine. She just wanted, you know, quality check. <laughs> right. Quality, make sure I'm not like talking about her too much. So I told her about the grudge episode and she said, she <laughs> proceeded to say, did you mention this? No. Did you mention that? No. And she said she mentioned six grudges that I have and none of them were those three. And she said, I can't believe none of these made your top three. The, the number one one. And I know he doesn't listen. I, I know this guy doesn't listen. I know he doesn't. Um, that she said she couldn't believe I didn't mention was my college roommate stole my blanket off my bed and brought it to the beach and used it and then denied it. And I caught him do it, that he did it. And I was sleeping at another person's house for like months at a time and stuff. So I like was never there, but either way, didn't ask permission. And because of that, I, I, I turned down an invitation to his wedding and I did not invite him to my wedding and really don't speak to him anymore because of the blanket. <laughs> so she was shocked. She says, cause she says, he thinks that's my biggest grudge. So the blanket blanket gate, we call it. So there you go. Well, I mean, I could see that probably sounds like one of your longest running grudges, but maybe I see why it might not be in the top three. That was like, you know, a, a long time ago. But I still don't speak to him because of it. And I didn't go to his wedding and didn't invite him to my wedding because he's took, he took a blanket off my bed and brought it to the beach. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, t- to each their own. Uh, All right. Well, good show, though. It was great. Uh, great to be back. And we will effort putting these shows out more often. I'm glad you're feeling better. Yeah. Uh, you look better. Uh, we, we met in person yesterday and you looked healthy. Um, you're a little, you know, a little, little in pain, but um, you, you, you look better. So I'm glad you're fully recovered and we look forward to the next show. I'm on the right track. I don't know if I'm fully recovered, but uh, a few more months before I can start working out and I already miss it. So really? Yeah. When Can't when did were you Can't working were you working out before this? I was, yeah. All right, Connor. Anyway. Till next All right, time. Man. All right. Good night, Kaylee. See ya.